Hi, Journey. How y'all doing? Happy New Year to all of you. Can you believe that it is 2011? Whoa, remember back when it was just like 2000? That was kind of a big deal when Y2K and the world was going to end and all that stuff. And it's been like 11 years. And they say it's going to end in 2012. So you never know. If you're a guest with us today, we're particularly delighted that you're here today. And we've been praying that this experience, that this time would be spiritually meaningful and significant, enriching for you wherever you are on the spiritual continuum. We welcome you here today. I ran across some reflections on a new year that were quite striking to me, quotes from uh, famous people. It doesn't really matter who said them. Uh, They're still quite profound. Someone said, youth is when you're allowed to stay up late on New Year's Eve. Remember that? And middle age is when you're forced to. (laughs) Like you have to pick up your kids from the youth group party that goes until one o'clock in the morning. I brought uh, three of our kids over for that uh, the other night, whatever New Year's Eve night. Was that Friday night? I guess it was. Uh, and I thought, I was going to take a bunch of kids home. And I thought, well, rather than go home, I'll just go over to my office and do some work. Uh, I'm very boring, just in case you're wondering. New Year's Eve and I'm in my office working. Uh, that means I'm old and boring. Uh, and so I did my work and I heard the party going on. Uh, and it was something. Man, this building, it reeked. That's all there is to say a couple hundred middle and high schoolers in here like whoa get me back to my office and I fell asleep on the floor of my office just right over there at about 11 57 and even you know and then I woke up uh, at about 10 minutes to one or so to the sound of fireworks going off and they lit them off right in this room it was amazing just kidding it was outside and so uh, there I am middle-aged forced to stay up so I can pick up the children and take them all home Someone else said uh, about the new year, people are so worried about what they eat between Christmas and the new year, but they really should be worried about what they eat between the new year and Christmas. Isn't that the truth? Someone else said an optimist stays up until midnight to see the new year in. A pessimist stays up to make sure the old year leaves. Get that one out of here. Someone very wise said new year's resolutions are simply checks that people draw on a bank where they have no account. A little zing at resolution, people. And then a very famous woman said these words, cheers to a new year and another chance for us to get it right. Another chance for us to get it right. And it is, it's the start of a new year. And the start of a new year is indeed another chance for us to get it right or at least attempt to get it right, especially when it comes to following Jesus. And for us across the life of Journey Church, we're going to take the next three weekends in a series that we call This Is How We Do It. And we want to take this opportunity to measure the Christianity that we're living against the Christianity that Jesus intended. Because you see, for a whole bunch of Christians, those are different things. For a whole bunch of Christians, the Christianity that they're living is different from the Christianity that Jesus intended for we who call ourselves his followers. And Journey Church, we do not want that to be us, do we? We do not want that to be us. Sure, it has been over 2,000 years since Christianity's founding. Yes, some expressions of following Jesus are bound to change over that course of time, but what doesn't change, or at least what ought not change, is the core of what it is to know and follow Jesus Christ. 
And so today, this weekend, I'm going to be talking about knowing and following Jesus, what it is at its very core. Next weekend, Chris Townley, our student pastor, is going to be talking about the cost of discipleship, the high cost of taking up the cross of Jesus Christ, because there is a price to be paid, isn't there? And then, as you saw on that uh, film clip, the 15th and 16th of January, uh, my friend Shane Claiborne is going to be here speaking to us in these weekend experiences. And that's going to be a special treat. Uh, Shane's kind of a big deal. Actually, he's not kind of a big deal. He is a very big deal. He was my suite mate at Eastern College. That sounds weird, uh, but it's kind of like a roommate, but we, we lived in a suite, and so he was my suite mate. Uh, and I haven't seen him in a while, and so he's going to be here, and he's going to share. Now, if you know anything about Shane Claiborne, and if you want to know something, just Google him, and you'll find plenty, I'm certain. It's sort of his job in Christendom. He sort of sees his job in Christendom to sort of rattle the cages of cultural Christians. And here's what I'm telling him. Shane, uh, we're pretty conservative out here in Montana, so please rattle our cage ever so gently. Please. Rattle our cage ever so gently, and I'm sure he'll gladly oblige us, or not. You won't want to miss that weekend, for sure. Back to the question that we're seeking to answer here today, are you living out the core of Christianity that Jesus himself intended for we who call ourselves his followers? And how would you know if you were or if you weren't? If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. You can follow along on the screens if you'd like. And in this text, Jesus is laying out for us quite succinctly the very core, the very crux of what it means to know and follow him. Here's the passage, Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Equally important. Those are key words. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And we peel back the curtain on this text, we discover that the competition among the reigning religious leaders of Jesus' day to trounce him in debate is heating up. It's heating way up, as a matter of fact. The Pharisees, they catch wind of how Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That's verses 22 to 33 of Matthew 22. You can read that sometime. It's an interesting uh, interchange they have. And the Pharisees, they're bent out of shape. And so they huddle. They get all together. Now, what in the world is a Sadducee, and what in the world is a Pharisee? Now, scholars tell us that Sadducees were primarily a group of priestly conservatives. They were a segment of the Judean aristocracy. They were even, some scholars uh, posit, they were even a political party. Scholars tell us as well that Pharisees were this very attractive, very popular, very powerful faction of Jews who lived an ascetic life and were concerned most of all with presenting themselves as rigorous for the Torah, rigorous for the Jewish law. And the Sadducees had their shot at Christ, and now it's the Pharisees' turn to try to trip Jesus up theologically, which would be something, wouldn't it? This particular encounter is initiated by a, quote, expert in religious law from among the Pharisees. He approaches Jesus to test him. 
And this expert in religious law, do you know what that means? An expert in religious law, do you know what that makes him? It makes him a lawyer. Really, he is a lawyer. And he approaches him, Jesus, to test him. And the lawyer initiates this interchange with Jesus with a very piercing question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And has a little smirk on his face like, ha ha, and I get you with this one. Got you right here. The law of Moses in this interchange is a shorthand expression for what do you think? It's the entire Old Testament. The law of Moses in the entire Old Testament, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now you see, there was a regular debate that went on among rabbis to determine the more weighty and more light commandments from the Old Testament. There was in early Judaism a great deal of dispute about how to rank the 613 commandments. 613 commandments. 248 positive commands, 365 prohibitions in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament of the Bible, and how to rank them in terms of importance. And even more, they debated which one was the most crucial or most paramount of all those commands that could be used as the lens through which the rest of the law could then be seen and interpreted. This lawyer, of course, was very, very well aware of this ongoing debate and discussion and is trying to paint Jesus into this theological corner, sort of a gotcha moment of sorts. So Jesus, what is it? What is the first commandment? You know there's 613 of them, 248 positive commands. That means there's 248 do thises in the Hebrew scriptures and 365 prohibitions, 365 do not do thises. 365, one for every day of the year. That's interesting. Hmm, There's a New Year's resolution for you. Obey a new don't from the Old Testament every day of the year. Have fun with that, especially the one about wearing clothes that are made from multiple kinds of fabrics for some reason. Lycra and cotton do not mix. I don't know why. What is it? Jesus, the lawyer, snickers. Now, Jesus' reply is not at all unexpected. He quotes a verse. He doesn't make up a new verse here. He brings one forward from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Jesus responds without hesitation, and the answer that he gave was in total accord, not only with Mosaic law, but also with ancient Jewish custom based on that law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind is a part of the Shema. That's Hebrew for the word hear, as in listen, so named because it began with hear, O Israel. The Shema comprises the text of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Deuteronomy eleven thirteen 13 to 21, Numbers 15, 37 to 41. You could look at those sometime. And was by far the most familiar, most quoted, most copied scripture passages in all of Judaism. It's likely as close as you could get to a Jewish confession of faith, if you will. Sort of the Jewish equivalent of our Christian apostles' creed, the basic tenets of what it is to know and follow Jesus. And in Christ's day, every single faithful Jew recited the Shema twice a day, top to bottom, beginning day. 
And so the text of the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus gives an answer to the sly lawyer's question. There are two of the four scripture texts that were copied on these very, very small pieces of parchment paper and placed in a phylactery, not a factory, but a phylactery, which were a pair of small black boxes containing these passages from scripture that are written on parchment. And according to ancient Jewish tradition, the phylacteries are fastened by these black straps to the upper left arm and above the forehead, these little black boxes you strap one here and you put one here and they're to be worn by Jewish men during prayer. Weird. The practice was based on what? This text from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 6 through 9. Some of you know these verses. You'll recognize them. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Here it is right here. This is where phylacteries come from. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the Pharisees did just that. But see, you can take a text of scripture so literally that you miss entirely its intended meaning. It wasn't meant to be about writing the verses on little tiny pieces of parchment paper and then strapping them to your head and to your arm, even to your house and to your gates, which they also did with these little boxes they called mezuzahs, which were the same kind of small box that Jews attached to the doorposts of their houses. That was not the point. The point was that you were to set these truths in your heart and then do this crazy thing Do them. Set these truths in your heart and then walk them out. Be about them. Give yourselves to them. Do this. So Jesus answers this sly lawyer's question about what the most important law was with really sort of an equally sly answer. The great and first commandment is the commandment of Moses that all of you, you can see him sort of pointing back at them, all of you recite every day that many of you bind on your arms and foreheads and doorposts of your houses. It's really another way for Jesus to say, guys, you should know this. You don't need me to tell you. You should know this. But you don't really know it, do you? And then Jesus continues. He brings another verse forward from Leviticus 19.18. doesn't make up a new verse. A second is equally important, equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' words, not mine. Equally important. So you put all this together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus getting at? Now, the Hebrew word Jesus uses here for love in Matthew 22 refers primarily to an act of mind and will. It is then, see, the determined care for the welfare of something or someone. It absolutely includes strong emotion, certainly, but it's distinguishing, this kind of love's distinguishing characteristics are the dedication and commitment of choice. I choose you. Love for God, see, then, is understood not as just an emotional attachment, a warm and fuzzy feeling. Rather, it means, watch this, giving oneself entirely to him. Giving oneself entirely to him. Your entire personhood to him. 
heart, soul, and mind, they're not rigidly separated compartments of the human existence. As a matter of fact, Jews did not even think about human existence in those terms. They saw people holistically. Therefore, Jesus is saying, you give your entire personhood to God when you love him with your whole being. Every bit of you. Nothing held back. And then a second one is equally important, Jesus says, like the first commandment. Jesus Christ is not simply advocating this warm and fuzzy emotional attachment or abstract feel-good love for your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Anybody you happen to be in close proximity to. Not just the people you live around or sit around. It's any person who you are ever in close proximity to. This kind of love then indicates a concrete responsibility. It's the act of being useful and beneficial, useful and beneficial to one's neighbors, both Jew and Gentile, like you, not like you. Politically the same, politically different. Rich or poor useful and beneficial to one's neighbor. To love, one man says, is to give to someone what that person needs. Interesting, sometimes we say, oh, I just can't take that person. They're so needy. Yeah, and Jesus said that's exactly what love is, to meet them in their point of need. To give to them what they need. So how do you do that? How do you obey these commands that Jesus says are so important that they are the capstone commands of all 613 commands from the Hebrew scripture? How do you do that? Four things today. Four things. First one is this. And it starts here. It swings here. You must be born again. You must have your very own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot ride anybody's coattails in this deal. If you're going to obey God in the love God and love people, it all starts with you having your own personal relationship with him. Being born again. Loving God with all of you, loving your neighbor as yourself, is not just something that you just will yourself to either. You do not just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, yep, going to be about that in 2011. Here we go. It will not come from inside of you. It must come from outside of you. And the reason that it must come from outside of you is that you were born, we were born, all of us were born with a sin nature. And our sin nature separates us and keeps us from a holy, perfect, magnificent, righteous, just God. That's why the Bible says that God so loved the world. That's all of us. It's not like rocks and sticks and trees and things. That's us, people. God loved people so much that he gave his one and only, his singular son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a cruel, gnarly, brutal way to die, who before he died said, look, folks, I came so that you might have life. 
so that you might have life full, abundant, authentic, rich life. Jesus Christ came to forgive our sins absolutely as well as to reveal the love that God has for every single one of us. And that sounds quite simple, doesn't it? God sent Jesus to die for me. Cool. But see, our sin problem touches every part of our being, doesn't it? Sin's taint causes us to spend so much of our lives searching for life in things, in money, in status, in relationships, in material objects, in all manner of other places. And when we do that, we miss the real life that God intended for us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. What do you do to be born again? What do you do so that you can have your own personal relationship with God through his one and only son, Jesus Christ? It's really quite simple. You start by confessing to God. You confess to God. God, I recognize I am a sinner. I recognize that I have been going away from you, opposed to you, doing my own thing. And God, I pray that you would please forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, I want to know you more than I want anything else in this world. Jesus, please forgive me. Please change me. And as you pray that to Jesus, he not only forgives your sins in an instant, but he fills you in another instant with his Holy Spirit, which empowers you to love God and love your neighbor. Remember I said that love cannot come from within you. It must come from outside of you via the Holy Spirit, which God places inside of you. And the instant that God's Holy Spirit enters your life, you are never to be the same, transformed permanently, And I'm sure, sitting in this room and within the hearing of my voice right now, there are some people who feel incredibly heavy under the weight, the burden of your sin. You've been lugging a thousand-pound suitcase for far too long. What's true is that God will forgive you. God will forgive you. No matter what you've done, no matter how bleak it seems, No matter how dark your act feels, he will forgive you. He will make you new. And some others of you have been searching and searching and searching for the only person who ever can and ever will fill the hole in your soul. And today, your search can be over. Today, you can know him. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the one who you've been searching for. And in just a few minutes from right now, I'm going to give you a chance to give your life to him, to be born again, to start your own personal relationship with him. But you see, loving God and loving your neighbor all starts right there. It doesn't start anywhere else. It starts with being born again. If you want to love God with all of you and if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, number two, God must become the key feature of your life. 
He must become your everything. Because you see, lukewarm enthusiasm for God is nauseating to Jesus. Strong word. He means it. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Here's what the Bible says. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm enthusiasm for God is nauseating to him. Following Jesus, see, is not just about praying a little prayer at some point in your life and then getting right back to whatever you want to do and be about. Loving God with all of you, loving your neighbor as yourself, isn't just about adding a little bit of Jesus to your life and then keeping on trucking down the same road you've been on, doing the same things you've been doing. That is really a gross disservice to everything that Jesus Christ came to do for you on the cross. A gross disservice. God becoming the key feature of your life means that you eliminate all competing loves. Nothing comes before God. Nothing comes before God. It means that you live your life to please Him first and foremost. That, uh, you know, lots of people wear wristbands, WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's fine. We'll take that. But even better than that, is what would please him, WWPH. Not quite as nifty of a slogan. What would please him? God is the key feature of your life, means that you care most deeply about him. You live full on for him. You don't hold anything back. You're fully and completely and totally devoted to him. You live for him first and foremost. You eliminate all competing loves making God the key feature of your life. If you want to love God with all of you, if you want to love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself, number three, this sounds similar to the last one. It's different, though. I'll show you how. You must become wholehearted in your devotion to him. You must become wholehearted in your devotion to him. Uh, let me illustrate this one this way. Pretend you and your spouse are traveling to a part of the country, you fly into a part of the country where you've never been before, and you know you're going to be taking a route to your intended destination that's going to take you down obscure winding back roads, and so you disembark the aircraft and you make your way down to the rental car counter, you produce your credit card and your driver's license like they ask you to do, and the guy behind the counter is filling out all the paperwork, it's like reams when you rent a car, it's crazy, and the guy behind the counter is he's getting your keys and such, he says, along with your car, if you want, you can get this cool GPS system thing, aren't they the best? GPSs, they're just the best. All you got to do is plug it in. You punch in your destination address. A kind woman's voice, sometimes with a British accent, tells you how to get wherever it is that you're trying to go. Sweet. It's cool. Now, just imagine that it's you in this scenario. The guy at the counter asks if you want one. Uh, Man, what is your immediate response? Uh Uh-uh. I don't need one of those. That's going to cost me more. I know where I'm going. I'll figure it out myself. Now, man, your wife is with you on this particular trip. What's she say? Get the GPS. And you're a smart man, and so our story continues. You get the GPS. Now, here's the deal. You can get the GPS device, and you can have the kind British voice lady in the car with you, but that doesn't mean you have to trust her, do you? Because if you trust her, what do you do? Well, you do what she tells you to do. You go where she tells you to go. 
She says, turn left, what do you do? You turn left. She says, turn left, and in your heart you think, but I really want to turn right because I think it's this way. And in that instant, you remember Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I ain't going there. I'll go left. (laughs) Following Jesus, see, it means you are wholehearted in your devotion to him. It means that you will do what he tells you to do. Yeah, you're going to mess up a lot, just like I mess up a lot. Yeah, you're going to need his power, absolutely. He knows that. You know that. But you say to him these words, God, with your help, as best I can, I will do everything you say for me to do. I give you my life. I give you my time. I give you my resources. I give you my obedience. Here I am, God. And here's the deal. If you're not saying to him those words, God, with your help, as best I can, I will do what you say. I give you my life, my time, my resources, my obedience. Then will you please be honest about that with him? Please be honest about that with him. Because if that isn't, as one man calls it, your settled intent, then whatever else you may be, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You might be an admirer of his, maybe. But God is not on the search for admirers of him. He is about followers of him. And he's searching and he's looking And he's inviting people to say, all right, God, I'm doing what you say. I'm in, all in. Now, there's something else you need to know about God, uh, something that's also true when dealing with a GPS system. Imagine that at some point you're on this same trip that we've been on. You're driving in that rented car on those back roads, you and your spouse. And imagine you come to a, a point where you're convinced that the kind British accent GPS voice lady, she's wrong. She says, go left, and you do not go left. You choose right, because you know that she's absolutely wrong. 13 satellites in the sky, the map that's been downloaded, they're all wrong. You got it right. And so you go right, because you know she's wrong. She has a very interesting response to that scenario, doesn't she? She says what? Calculating route, when possible, make a legal (laughs) U-turn. But let's just say that you still know she's wrong. What do you do? You unplug her. It's part of the beauty of the little GPS box thing. You just unplug her. Now let's just say because you chose that path, you get completely and utterly and totally lost. You have no idea where you are. And you're grumbling as you try to figure out where you are. Your spouse is in the passenger seat trying to restrain laughter. Told you. So let's just say you come to your senses, you wise up, you plug the kind British accent GPS lady back in. And guess what she says? I told you so, you idiot. You think I'm going to help you now? You rejected me. You try to find your own way by yourself. Uh -uh. Not even close, is it? The kind British accent voice lady, she doesn't say that. She says, calculating route. When possible, 
make a legal U-turn. That's grace. That's grace. As soon as you're ready to listen, as soon as you're ready to surrender, God says, home is this way. Home is this way. Make a legal U-turn. You know what that's called? Repentance. Make a legal U-turn. I'll bring you home. That's grace, and that is Jesus, isn't it? He's the only one with authoritative wisdom about how to live life. He is the only one who brings about the possibility of forgiveness for your sin and mine. He is the only one to give any kind of realistic hope of conquering death, life beyond the grave. Why would you not give your wholehearted devotion to him? Jesus Christ is not just a good spiritual teacher meant to be admired from a distance, huh? He is master. He is Lord. He is the one to be followed. He is the one to be served and worshipped and obeyed. He is the one whom our existence is meant to be ordered in and around. He's it. He's it. And number four, if you want to love God with all of you, if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, last one, your love of him must touch the practical parts of life. Giving yourself to others. It must touch the practical parts of life. We are to put the love that we have for God onto other people. Our neighbors are meant to be the outlet for the pent-up love that we have for God. See? The jerk you work with. The idiot who's in front of you on the interstate. The rude checkout clerk at the store. They are to be the outlet for all of the pent-up love that we have for God. Why? Because God loves them too. And God sent Jesus to die for them too. He didn't just send Jesus to die for you. He sent him to die for all of us. And loving others in the same way that you love yourself is meant to be one of the expressions of our love for God which is what helps us make sense of verses like Matthew 25, 40. And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. You were doing it to me. Speaking about visiting people in prison and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. So our neighbors, people, all people, like us, not like us, are to be the outlet for the pent-up love that we have for God. A guy named Gregory Boyle, he tells the story of a jailed 15-year-old gang member named Rigo. Rigo was getting ready one day for a special worship service with Mr. Boyle for incarcerated youth. Boyle got up next to him and asked if Rigo's father would be coming to the service that day. No, Rigo said. 
My dad's a heroin addict. He'd never been in my life. He used to always beat me. And as we go sort of stared off into space, partially there, partially there, he recalled an image from his childhood. I, I think it was in fourth grade, he said to Mr. Boyle. I, I came home. I got actually sent home from school in the middle of the day. And when I got home, my dad didn't work. So there he was. And my dad kind of got in my face and said, what, why'd they send you home? What are you doing here? What happened? And because my dad always beat me, Rigo said, I, I told him, uh, if I tell you, you have to promise not to hit me. Rigo's father said, I'm your, I'm your father. Of course, I'm not going to hit you. So Rigo told him. And as Rigo was recounting that story, so staring off into space, he began to weep. And it didn't take long, and he started wailing and rocking back and forth, sobbing uncontrollably at this point. And Mr. Boyle put his arm around him and slowly helped calm him down. When Rigo could finally speak, when he had composed himself enough that he could form words, he spoke quietly, kind of in a state of shock. He said, Dad beat me with a pipe that day. With a pipe, he said. Boyle permitted Rigo to compose himself a little further, and then he said, well, what about your mom? Tell me about her. Rigo pointed across the dingy jailhouse room at a small woman who was bustling about across the room, and he said, so that's my mom right over there. That's my mom. There ain't no one like my mom, he said. Rigo paused, and he said, you know, I've been locked up for a year and a half now, and my mom comes to see me every single Sunday. It's the only day she can come. She has to work the other six days. But on Sunday, she can come and see me. And every Sunday, she faithfully makes that trip. And Rigo said, do you know how many buses my mom has to take to see me every single Sunday? Do you know how many buses? And Rigo started sobbing with the same ferocity he had when he was talking about his dad. After catching his breath, he gasped through the sobs, seven buses. She takes seven buses to see me every Sunday. Journey Church, how many buses, figuratively speaking, are you taking to love your neighbor as the expression of your love for God? How many buses are you taking? How many buses are you taking? Because see, Jesus says that all 613 commands from the Hebrew scriptures hinge on these twin, equally important commands. Love God, love people. Which are really just two parts of the same thing, aren't they? It's a lot like breathing, isn't it? Two parts of the same thing. We inhale. Love God. We obey him. We trust him. We follow him. We have a personal relationship with him. He is the key feature of our life. We give our wholehearted devotion to him. The inhale. Love God. And we exhale. Love people. And we do that by serving them, praying for them, taking concrete action on their behalf. 
going out of our way, riding a hundred buses if need be, to be Jesus to them in whatever way they need us to be Jesus to them. Inhale, love God. Exhale, love people. Love God, love people. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would, please. Just invite you to think about the things that we've been talking about and thinking about here today. Ask God to continue to work in your heart. In this prayer time, would you and the Lord just cement some decisions about what it's going to look like for you to love God and love people in this new year, 2011? What's it going to look like? The inhale, love God. The exhale, love people. It's vertical and it's horizontal. It's you and God, absolutely. It's you and people, absolutely. And what if for you, this is your day to be born again? What if for you, this is your day? What if it's your day to cross the line of faith into your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You're not riding anyone's coattails anymore. You're not just a cultural Christian anymore. But your faith is yours. What do you got to do to be born again? What do you got to do to have your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You start by confessing, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that I've been going away from you. God, I recognize that a whole bunch of my life has really been in opposition even to you. God, would you please forgive me for all of my sin? Jesus, I want to know you more than I want anything else in this world nothing even comes close Jesus please forgive me Jesus please change me and as you pray that prayer Jesus is not only forgiving your sins he's filling you remember with his Holy Spirit and it's the Holy Spirit that empowers you to love God with all of you and love your neighbor as yourself It's the Holy Spirit who ensures that you will not ever be the same. And maybe there are some of you who are feeling incredibly heavy under the weight of your sin. It is so dark. It is so deep. But no matter what you've done, God will forgive you. 
God will forgive you. He will make you brand new. And others of you have been searching and searching for the only person who can and will fill the hole in your soul. And today you can know him. His name is Jesus. He is the one whom you have been looking for. And those of you today who would say, yes, I'm turning back to you, God. Those of you who would say, God, forgive me of my sins. Those of you who would say, make me brand new. Those of you who are saying, I want to surrender it all to you. I want to trust in you. I'm not trusting in anything else. Jesus, I'm trusting you. Save me. Those of you who are saying, I give my life completely to you, if that's your prayer today, would you just real boldly right now just lift your hands high, lock eyes with me, lift them up and keep them up. Just say, yep, that's me. Yeah, right there, right there. Yes. Right there and there and there. Yes. Hold them up so I can see. I want to say yes with you. Yes, right there. Yes. And in the back, yes, absolutely. I'm saying yes with you. I'm saying yes with you, and yes, and you, and you, yes. Yes. Come home to him. You don't got to go it alone anymore. Love God, love people. The inhale and the exhale. And and God, we convolute what it is to follow you so often. We make it way, way, way more difficult than you ever said that it should be. And God, today we're getting back to it. The crux of what it is to know you and follow you. It's to love you and love people. To love God, to love people. Make us brave, God. Make us brave as we do those things. Because we can't do it without you. And we ask, God, that your kingdom would come through us. as we love you and as we love your people.